2: Hello and welcome to Gone Medieval. I'm Dr Kat Jarman and one of the things we'll be doing in this podcast is look at some of the very familiar myths and legends about the Middle Ages and there's an awful lot of them, trying to disentangle the fact from the fiction. And you might be familiar with the term go berserk, meaning to erupt in a furious rage or go wild or become crazy with anger. And that term derives from the berserkers who may be less familiar to some of you But you may know them as a select group of Viking warriors, renowned for their strength and ferocity in battle, who would enter the battlefield with a fierce cry, maybe dressed in bear skins, completely out of control perhaps, but very effective. But were these berserkers actually real? Were they warriors that you could expect to meet in battle during the Viking Age, howling and biting their shields? Or were they something else entirely, if they even existed at all? To find out about this, today I've invited the ultimate expert on berserkers, Dr. Roderick Dale, who has dedicated quite a significant part of his life to separating the facts from the fiction in this topic. Roderick did his PhD on the subject at the University of Nottingham and now works at the University of Stavanger in Norway. So, welcome to Gone Medieval, Roderick. So, I think we're going to just launch straight into it. and. I wanted to start with asking you a little bit more about this sort of popular perception of the berserkers. And when you talk to people about it and what you study, what sort of thing do they have in mind? What what sort of things have they learnt about the berserkers?
1: People have uh, picked up a lot about berserkir. I generally use the Old Norse term because the modern English term berserker has quite a specific meaning, which, as you mentioned in your introduction, implies the They were people who went absolutely mad in battle, were totally uncontrollable, and basically were dangerous to both friend and foe. A lot of people will have learnt about this from fiction in the past 40-odd years, from role-playing games where you can be a berserker barbarian in Dungeons & Dragons or something similar... It was, in fact, one of the earliest uh, character classes to be created outside the Dungeons & Dragons rulebooks, was the Berserker. And what people generally think is one of two things. Either they were warriors, uncontrollable warriors who wore bearskins, skins, or they were uncontrollable warriors who threw all their clothes and armour off and fought in the nude in battle. These are, however, much later constructions of what a berserker identity would be. That's basically what people know about them.
2: Okay, so that's quite an attractive idea though, isn't it? It's quite a a sort of exciting, attractive idea, and and it fits, I think, quite well with a lot of people's perceptions of the the Viking Age. But where does this come from then? What's the kind of origins of those stories of the berserkers?
1: The original origin and the earliest stories we have about them is the Old Norse literature that was written down mostly in Iceland in the 13th and 14th centuries. The legendary sagas look at the time around the migration period following the fall of Rome and they describe events that supposedly happened back then. Then there's the Íslendingasrgr, the sagas of the Icelanders, which record the settlement period through to around the year 1000-ish, a little bit afterwards. And there there are also some contemporary sagas recording the events of the 13th century. And if anybody has read any of these sagas just in passing, it is most likely they will have read the sagas of the Icelanders those are the ones of the most popular stories. It's about people like Bernt Njál, who got burnt in his house with his wife in a feud in Iceland, or about Eil Skallagrimsson, the famous Icelandic poet, who's often said to be a berserker in later scholarship and popular culture, and who was very much at odds with Eric Bloodaxe, the famous Viking king, and his wife. So those are the stories that people know them from.
2: And some of those are quite graphic and they're, they're quite sort of violent, aren't they? So that's where you, you get some of these quite uh, attractive events, I guess, that people cling on to.
1: People have read these sagas and they quite often focus on the violence in them, the Holmgang, the duels, uh, which is where in the sagas of the Icelanders you mostly see Basagir. And it's a shame, really, because the sagas have so much to do with law and culture and families. And de- they are descriptions are reads like these are living people. These are people we could be actually living next door to, just a bit grumpier.
2: <laughs> Excellent. I like that idea. But so in terms of the the berserkers, then, um, well, let's just go back to the, the name uh, or the berserker what does that actually come from? Now, we talked about the, the, the bearskins earlier on, um, can you explain the origin of, of the name?
1: The modern English Berserker comes from Old Norse Berserkr, which is a compound word consisting of two elements, bear, which is disputed and can mean either bear, i.e. naked, or bear a bear. And the second half of the word serkr means a shirt, but it can also mean a coat of mail, so a type of armour. So they are either bare of shirt, or they are wearing a bare skin shirt. And bare of shirt doesn't actually mean they fought naked. There is absolutely nothing in Old Norse literature that talks about them actually fighting naked. I'm gonna make this point quite firmly right now. We do get episodes of people throwing their armour off, Snoddy Stuttleson, the Icelandic historian of the th- from the 13th century, loves this motif and it's always a hot day. So they take their armor off and every time they take their armor off in his uh, history of the Norwegian Kings, they die. But also with these stories, they are never about Berserkir themselves. It's always Kings. So Harald Hardrada takes his armor off at the Battle of Stamford Bridge because it's too hot. The other thing with the name Berserk is it's often connected with the Old Norse word Ulfhæðinn, which in the plural is Ulfhednar, and people will have heard of it as the ulfhednar in English, the wolfskins, warriors who supposedly wore wolfskins. And in Old Norse literature, the two words are connected. We see in Vázdæla saga, the saga of the people of Vastale in Iceland, that there is a line which actually says, those berserks who were called wolfskins. They may have been a subgroup, or this may have just been a later rationalisation of the two, but the connection is made very strongly, and it's actually made very early as well, because in the poem Haraldskvæði, the poem about Harold Fairhair, which is also known as the Raven's poem, uh, it actually says in two of the verses, one of the in one of the verses, the raven asks about the equipment of the Beserkir. and the Valkyrie replies, "Those men are called wolfskins. Those men are called Ulfhethnar, and they carry bloody shields into battle, and they bloody spears." And so the link is made early in the. And the thing about this poem is that although it's only recorded from the 13th century, it's written down round about that time, because of the way Old Norse poetry works, we're fairly confident that it was actually composed sometime around 900, shortly after the Battle of Hafsfjord, which is about four kilometres to the west of where I'm sitting right now.
2: Right, excellent. So this actually shows that not all the sources are later in medieval period, but actually we do have references to berserkers from the Viking Age uh, itself. And what about other sources? Because are there not some, if we go back to this idea of the, the bear skins, are there not also some pictures and representations of people wearing... Some kind of bear costume or, or headdress in, in the archaeological record or in the, in the sort of pictorial record?
1: Bears are more problematic. From the migration period through to the very beginning of the Viking Age, we find images of figures wearing wolf skins and they appear to be wearing whole wolf skins so that you can't see their face and they just appear to have like a wolf's head. And these have often been connected to Berserkir because of the literary connection I mentioned. So it's difficult to comment specifically on them and say these absolutely are Berserkir, but they are used a lot as evidence. And they do suggest that there were people wearing animal skins in this fashion. The closest we get to anything bear-like is the runestone, Kelvu 56, which is, has a depiction of a person with a slightly bear-like head, but with droopy ears on it, so they could be a basset hound. Or a fresco in the Hagia Sophia in Kiev, which is called The Fight of the Geysers, and appears to depict a man with his top half uncovered, except wearing a kind of bearish sort of mask in an apparent dual pose, opposing a man with sword and shield. From context, it's an entertainment, probably, but these are the kinds of things we're looking at, and that then gets us to felt masks that were found at Hedeby in Denmark, where We have absolutely no idea how they were actually used, and it would be too speculative to say this is what Besetkir did. But certainly, in terms of appearing in an animal form, these masks suggest that there is some kind of guising, some kind of mumming going on that could be related to Besetkir, even if those specifically were not part of that.
2: Okay, so. We have some imagery then of these animal headdresses or some, some sort of dressing up as animals. So we have some evidence of the Berserkus that is contemporary, but a lot of it is much later. But we'll get back to that again in a moment. But I just want to just mention one other quite common uh, belief, uh, which you may well now ruin for us. It's this idea that the sort of anger and rage came from drugs and especially from magic mushrooms, that this was used to whip the berserkers into a mad rage before battle. How about that? Where did that idea come from? And, And is there any truth in that at all?
1: there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever for the use of magic mushrooms of any description in Scandinavia in the Viking Age to make people go berserk in battle.
2: Ah, and so where on earth has that come from then? Because that is a very common belief.
1: It is. It's actually, it's the Swedish theologian Samuel Erdmann in 1784 suggested based on his knowledge of Siberian shamanism that they used Amanita muscaria, the fly agaric mushroom, which is that famous red and white topped one that everybody can see, everybody has seen, and everybody knows, to actually go berserk. And then it was further popularized in 1956 when Howard Fabin performed experiments on prisoners in Ohio State Penitentiary, extracting what he thought was the active... uh, ingredient, bufatenin, uh, and feeding it to these prisoners and monitoring what actually happened. And he concluded that it matched the symptoms that he understood from Old Norse literature. Problem there is that his study really only highlights what he doesn't know about Old Norse literature.
2: It's okay. So these really are very much very Uh, well, to us at least, modern, although a few people would not agree that a few hundred years ago was modern, but that these were ideas that came about really quite recently, but we have no evidence for it.
0: catastrophic warfare bloody
1: revolutions and violent ideological battles i'm james rogers and over on the warfare podcast we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict we've got the classics understandably when we see it from hindsight
0: the great revelation in potsdam was really Stalin saying yeah tell me something i don't know Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I?, How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Obviously, let's get back to the, the facts and the evidence, because you've gone through the literature. So if they aren't those mad and, and ferocious drug fueled warriors that, that we might think or want them to be, who were they, really? And what does the literature say?
1: Although there's no evidence of the use of magic mushrooms, and similarly no evidence of the use of henbane, which was suggested in 2019 by an ethnobotanist, or of any of the other um, causes of going berserk that have been suggested since Stefan Stephanius in 1644 decided that it was demonic possession because Odin was a black magician who was possessing men. We really need to look at the Old Norse literature and try and get inside the heads of the audience and understand what they understood from it.
2: Yeah, that's Quite an important point, isn't it? The fact that these I mean they're obviously not written for us, but they were written in the thirteenth and fourteenth century for an audience that were expecting and were familiar with with some of these concepts.
1: Yes, this is a problem actually we have with the Old Norse literature is that there will be assumed knowledge in there that we don't have. We don't have the keys to everything that's in there. But we can look at it and try and look at the cultural context within which it was written, and we can look at what kind of things we actually know would have been part of the experience of the people hearing these sagas, and therefore what might they have understood by episodes featuring Berserkir or mention of the word Berserk. But also, and something that hasn't really been done much, is trying to understand what the word actually means because we've discussed the etymology before but etymology is just a starting point it isn't the meaning of the word so trying to understand what they understood from Old Norse literature has got to be the first step in projecting a meaning backwards into the Viking Age
2: I know this is a bit of a, a tricky one for you to just summarise quite quickly, but if I can ask you, what, what do you think would be the main sort of takeaway message? So what, what would a uh, somebody living in 13th century or 14th century Iceland understand when they heard these stories about the berserkers?
1: What I concluded from actually reading through these episodes was that berserkers were linked very closely to duelling. The sagas of the Icelanders feature many duelling episodes where a berserk will come along and challenge a poor farmer for to a duel with the winner taking the farmer's farm and the uh, farmer's wife and the farmer's daughter it is understood that the farmer will be weak and unable to under, unable to fight the berserk and win at which point the saga hero steps in and says i'll be your champion in this duel and fights the duel and kills the Berserker, and everybody's happy. And frequently the uh, young ma- the young champion gains a sword from this, gains recognition, and uh, very occasionally actually takes a wife as a result. So there's the dueling episodes. Then there's also the episodes where you get Berserkir as members of a king's bodyguard. The most famous one is in Rolf Saga Kraka, the saga of King Rolf Krake where the saga presents his champions and his Beserkir as two groups of 12 people opposed to each other and who are slightly at odds, but they are his closest bodyguards. Interestingly, Snorri Sturklarsson, when describing these characters, actually describes the champions from Rolf's saga as Berserkir too, which is a clue to what the word means, I think. The other area that's particularly crucial for the for understanding what berserk means is the chivalric sagas, where we find Christian Berserkr, such as Antonius, who was Jesus's berserk. It says in the saga, "And Jesus Christ er holmgangus in's but Jesus Christ did not forget his Berserk's holmgang. And there's also Yosefat, who is God's young berserk. So God had a berserk too. And we find much the same in Charlemagne's saga, the saga of Charlemagne, where the hero Roland says to Bishop Turpin as he's dying, You've been a great berserk against the heathen men.
2: Okay. So there's a, this is quite an important religious element to this then, and and the sort of pagans against the, the Christians coming in here as well.
1: There is, there is, but the Besat can be both Christian and pagan. So we're seeing Christian Besat here, and the key element for me is when in the saga of Yvain, which is the retelling of Yvain, the Knight of the Lion, the... Two people whom Yvain is about to attack say, we don't want your lion fighting as your berserk. And this is a literal translation from Old French champion, meaning champion. And this connection between jewels being a king's bodyguard and these Christian berserk makes it quite clear that for the medieval audience, berserk could mean champion and was very much linked to fighting these jewels and being a bodyguard.
2: Right. So they were working for somebody in a very particular capacity um, and for a very good reason. So that's a a very interesting point.
1: Yes. And I think that given that in the poem about Harold Fairhair that I mentioned earlier, that dates from the Viking Age, when it mentions his berserkir, they are his warriors who are fighting in that capacity it seems quite clear that from the poem, insofar as anything's clear in poetry, that that's what they're actually doing. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to project a meaning of champion back to the Viking Age. And that is the core of the word. And then to that can be accreted pagan rituals, uh, the connection to the god Odin that Snorri Stuttleson makes, and various other social functions.
2: So we seem to have something here that that clearly has a defined uh, feature in society and in particular in the sort of slightly military combative contexts that is existent in the Viking Age and then it continues, and perhaps it then transforms its meaning through when, obviously, people change from uh, paganism and convert to Christianity, and it takes on a whole new uh, new meaning. But perhaps doing the same sort of role, but but a different context. Would that would that sound right?
1: Yes, in the Viking Age, if you think about berserkir as king's bodyguards who may have been thought to have a special connection to the God that gives victory in battle and therefore might have led rituals uh, that connect to that God because they're thought to have that connection. And then taking that forward to the medieval period where the pagan connections are lost to some extent, although still remembered in part in the saga literature, but also become transmuted into the possibility of them being Christian uh, bodyguards, Christian defenders of the faith, the sort of the knight of Christ, then you have social roles for them that fit the culture of the time, but absolutely do not fit the popular conceptions that have built up since then. And it's more reasonable to project a medieval meaning back to the Viking Age than it is to think that the medieval meaning suddenly changed and then we returned to a more Viking Age meaning later.
2: Yeah, so perhaps that's reflecting more what our conceptions are of the viking age which quite often are that sort of quite violent and and very sort of out of control rage that that perhaps fits more with with our perception than it did with any previous times
1: yeah yeah definitely i mean i really do think that when people are imagining the of popular culture it's projecting the present into the past and to some extent, it ties into the noble savage trope, the person free, untrammeled from the hindrances of civilization, the Conan the Barbarian archetype that is very popular in popular culture, but you really wouldn't want to invite them around for dinner.
2: Okay, now that's that's a really different uh, perspective, I think, on the berserkers than what most people uh, really have in mind. But the one thing we haven't talked about yet is that idea of the howling and the biting of shields, which, again, is something that that a lot of people have heard about. Can you just explain if there's anything to that at all?
1: The howling and the biting of shields is connected to what in Old Norse is known as berserkskonger, It's usually translated as going berserk, but that completely ignores the etymology of the word, which consists of the Old Norse word berserk, a berserk, and ganger meaning to go. But Ganger is always used of physical movement. It's not used in that transferred sense that we use it in English when we would say go berserk. So it's the movement of the berserk. And it features in the sagas frequently in the ju- at the start of the dueling episodes. I can't recall any examples from Old Norse literature that have berserkinger at the start of an actual massed battle. So that sort of suggests it's to do with the whatever rituals are, so, are associated with Holmgang, and. When we actually read these episodes, it's very easy to read them quickly and go oh, he's howling, he's biting his shield, oh, he's gone berserk in battle. But actually, if you read it as a narrative, then you realise there are actual narrative pauses between the Berserkskonger and the actual fight. The example I always use is Eil's Saga, where he fights the Berserk Jot the Pale. And Jot performs Besserskanger. Egil says some poems that are quite scurrilous about Ljot basically slamming him. So Ljot then says, all right, you big lad, I'll fight you instead. You're going to be more of a challenge anyway. But he's not ready for the duel yet, despite having performed Besserskanger at the start of this. So there's another narrative pause while Eil makes more scurrilous poetry about Ljot. Then they fight. Then Ljot wants a rest then there's a bit more poetry about how Jot's a bit rubbish, and then they finish the fight and Ljot dies. From a narrative perspective, this is not somebody going berserk. It suggests that what Ljot is doing may be some kind of ritual at the start of Holmgang, because Holmgang was circumscribed by rules, and it's likely that the Berserk performed his ritual, his Berserskanga beforehand. And I always think of it as culturally similar to a Maori haka, like the All Blacks perform before a rugby match. It boosts your courage. It intimidates the other side. And in pagan Scandinavia, it may have been designed to get the God of Victory and Jewels on your side.
2: That's a really, really interesting, a very important point, I think. Because if you think of, of these people going into battle, going into, into really a situation where many of them may well lose their lives in, in, a, in a duel or, or in a battle-type situation, that fits in quite nicely, I think, with, with what they might need, both the protection from, from a deity, but also to, to sort of get them in the right atmosphere.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't require mushrooms, it doesn't require alcohol, it doesn't require genetic abnormalities or any of the rest of that it's a cultural phenomenon it's a social phenomenon and that is how it reads in old norse literature if we had descriptions from the period it would be very interesting to see how they were but sadly we don't
2: but I think that's a brilliant summary actually and I think that although we may well now have disappointed quite a lot of people in this podcast, those who were expecting to to have those myths and stereotypes confirmed, but actually I think that that's adding a much more interesting and significant layer that we have these very significant cultural characters that that perform uh, roles that were important both in battle and in society at large. So We're going to leave it there for today. Uh, Thank you so much, Roderick, for joining me and dispelling some of these myths.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: And thank you to all our listeners out there. This has been Going Medieval. I'm Dr Kat Jarman and we'll be back with another episode next week. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to Going Medieval by History Hit and tell all your friends and your family to subscribe as well and uh, leave us a review if you want to. And uh, we will see you again soon.
0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use the code medieval at checkout.